So for the next three weeks, I'm intending to explore the territory, as some of you know, of self and selflessness. And I, in some sense, was invited to do this by uh, one of the members of our group who uh, was attendant at a retreat that some of you were at uh, here uh, with a Tibetan teacher on Dzogchen and asked me, more or less, why don't you haven't really taught much about emptiness and about all these more advanced concepts. And so, and I, I realized that there was some truth to that and that uh, I don't believe that I've given full-on talks here on the, the notion of not-self, which is central in Buddhism, and explore some of those, um, some of those themes. And so, what I'm intending to do is to give the next, today and then the next two uh, Wednesdays, looking broadly at the theme of self and selflessness and its different manifestations, what that means. Um, And I thought today what I'd do is more or less lay out the, uh, some of the main themes, some of the territory of the questions and, and point to the significance and also give us some practices for the next, uh, the next week. And that's, in fact, each of the weeks I'll, I'll connect the, the talk to practices that we can take home and continue to explore uh, on our own and in our daily lives. And then the next week, um, or this week, let me back up, I'll be especially looking at the notion of uh, self and not-self, the confusion that's often engendered by that topic, and what the, and, and a way to, to kind of unpack the, the whole area and make some sense of it, along with uh, pointing to what some of the uh, original teachings of the Buddha are and some practices that we can work with. Next week I'll talk especially about, the, uh, about some of the forms that the self takes and how to work with them. And again, connect that with practices, um, bringing in especially some of the heart practices, um, loving kindness and compassion, which in many ways are practices where we explore the boundaries of the self and look to, uh, in, in terms of connection with others and where, where does my compassion stop and so forth. So that'll be next week. And then the last week I was thinking, and some of this may change depending on how the, the, um, the time proceeds, but the last week I was thinking of looking at some of the, um, I might say some of the deeper teachings about interdependence and emptiness and liberation in the context of self and selflessness. So that's my, that's my intention. So first of all, I think it's uh, most of us who've been around uh, Buddhist practice, or, or I, actually I would say any form of spiritual practice, have probably come up against, uh, uh, if not confusion, then certain kinds of paradoxes about the very sense of self and who we are and what the intention of practice is. Uh, Some of you know that one of the core teachings of the Buddha is anatta, 
translated, I think most adequately, as not-self, often translated as no-self, which is a little misleading. But it's translated as not-self and uh, can be very confusing. So if, <laughs> if there's, you know, as some would say, if there's no-self, then who's, you know, driving through bad traffic to get here? <laughs> and try, you know, who's developing concentration and mindfulness and so forth? And, and What's going on? And you know, we know that in other traditions, it, it's the talk is about being a true self, or a deep self, or a, a true person. Or Carl Jung talks about the deepest movement of uh, personal development is towards what he calls the self, with a capital S. You know, and you know, how do we how do we put those together? Um, one way that, that this kind of tension was pointed to is um, comes from the interface between uh, Judaism and Buddhism. And, and some of you know that uh, there are a lot of Jewish Buddhists. In fact, Spirit Rock probably wouldn't exist without them. <laughs> and, and what that brings is the um, lineage of Jewish humor. So one way that this was expressed in Jewish humor was, was, was to say, the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. <laughs> so maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of confusion. And there's confusion also about even in the very terms that we use. You know, we often talk about the self and often use as a synonym the ego, as if the ego is the bad thing that just wants, almost a synonym for self-centeredness. And yet, those of you, many of you here are psychologists, and you know that in Western psychology, uh, there's a lot of talk about the ego as a good thing, that you have to have a healthy sense of self and boundaries and so forth, and, and that this is actually very important for development, that if you don't have that sense of healthy self and ego, uh, life doesn't proceed very well, and a lot of psychological work is there to help develop a, a sense of ego. So isn't that good? And where does that connect with not-self? And, and it's confusing, isn't it? So, you know, and do you want to develop not-self, or what about all my projects and so forth? And uh, maybe I'll bring in next time, there's a um, wonderful book by uh, Susan Moon, who is uh, uh, in the Zen tradition, uh, The Life and Teachings of Tofu Roshi. Some of you, anyone know the book on Tofu Roshi? I'll have to bring it in. It's a wonderful book. And she has a, a major address by Tofu Roshi, which is about how to give up self-improvement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she has like a, a six-point program for giving up giving up yoga <laughs> all sorts of you know all sorts of dieting projects and so forth so it's um, it's it's a confusing area you know and and we had and you know if you just on a conceptual level if you try to put it together it can get confusing or you know it can say okay I'm here I'm meditating I'm trying to develop these abilities and you tell me there's no self so who's doing it and you know why do you have to ha talk like that? <laughs> you know, so, 
And, and it, it actually gets even a little more confusing. It could because um, the Buddha did talk about not-self, but he also at times seemed to say something differently than that. And so I have, this is a very famous uh, dialogue which he had with uh, Vachagata. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this is, uh, this is a dialogue uh, that occurred. The wanderer Vachagota approached the Blessed One, the Buddha, and said, How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time he was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagata rose from his seat and departed. <laughs> <laughs> Then, not long after the wanderer Vachagata had left, the Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, Why is it that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wanderer Vachagata, he did not answer? If, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer Vachagata, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, this would have been adding, siding with those who are eternalist. And that's a, that's a uh, type of teacher who talk about an eternal self. And he, he, the Buddha is basically saying, most of our views about self get us into confusion and suffering. And, then, and if I, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihil- annihilationists. Another, sort of the other extreme, people who say there's no self, you know, might be the equivalent of people who say, there's no self, we're all determined, it's all, you know, DNA and biochemistry proceeding onward, you know, and the first one might be those who kind of say there's an eternal soul. And the Buddha is saying that actually those are both conceptual and we have to actually look at experience. But he's saying, if I had given any of those answers, they would have been misleading. He's basically saying, if I had said, uh, if I had said there is a self, or if I had said there is no self, the wanderer of Achagata, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion. And so, for us, um, that may actually be helpful, or it may lead us to further confusion. <laughs> He's basically, he, he basically saying, says that, from one perspective, we can't really say that there's either a self or not a self. Jack Kornfield's teacher, Achen Cha, said it this way, the teachings about no self are not true. The teachings about self are not true either. Another way, one more more passage and then I'll try to um, make some explanations of all this. This is from Gary Snyder, a very nice book called The Old Ways. He starts this by saying, We live in a universe, one turn in which it is widely felt all is one and at the same time all is many. The extra rooster and I were subject and object until one evening we became one. As the discriminating self-centered awareness of civilized human beings has increasingly improved uh, material survival potential, it has also moved us further and further from a spontaneous feeling of being part of the natural world. And so he's talking about what does it take to actually feel connected with a rooster or with the earth. And so 
And he's also saying that sometimes we can feel that sense of oneness and unity and connection, and sometimes we feel separate. So again, we're kind of getting to, is there a separate self? Is there no separate self? Is there unity? How do we make sense of all this and all the, all the, the other elements of this? And one way to look at that is to see that when we get into this territory, we are entering a territory of paradox. It's essentially a paradox because of the concepts. That when we actually go deeper into experience, the paradoxes fall away. But when we try to talk about it, the paradoxes arise. We could say at root, one of the ways to say it is at root the paradox lies in the fact that we are both individual and universal at the same time. We are both one and many at the same time. And concepts, when we try to hold that conceptually, the mind goes into tilt. You know, like those old uh, games, right? The uh, pinball machines. You know, we, we try to hold together, we are one, we are many, tilt. <laughs> tilt. And, and yet there, there's a, a way of making some sense of the paradox. The first thing is, when we actually try to think about this, know that it goes into the territory of paradox and that it can actually be confusing. And so I'm going to suggest in the long run that the, the deep way to resolve this is more experientially, is through, through practice. But we can actually see um, one, actually one conceptual way of making sense of it that's quite helpful is to see that there can be basically two uh, levels of understanding the question of self. And this uh, way of seeing developed in Buddhism, and I think is found in other traditions, developed in Buddhism after the time of the Buddha. And this is a distinction between what we might call a conventional level of seeing things and a more ultimate level of seeing things. Sometimes called a distinction between the relative and the absolute perspective. And the conventional or relative level is the realm of concepts. That's where we talk about, that's where we could talk about self. And in fact, when you look to the life of the Buddha, even though he taught not self, he, when people addressed him as Buddha or Blessed One, he didn't say, don't call me that, call me not self, <laughs> or, or call me the collection of the aggregates, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or call me this or that. He had, you know, he, they worked on a very conventional level, which was to see that one can, on a conventional level, the level of concepts, we can talk about uh, a self, we can know that it's a kind of a, uh, in a sense, a kind of a construction that we use for the sake of being practical. That we can uh, really, in a way, look at um, the way that we talk, the way that we use language and concepts as really designed for practical purposes of, you know, working with uh, working with the objects of the world. So we have a concept of chair, or person, or Donald, or Jill, or Barbara, and so forth. And we, uh, the Buddha was quite content to work with that, where we sort of assume that that kind of way of using language says they're selves, they're objects, that's how we, that's how we go about in the world. And we can, um, he also, he also talked about uh, the way that um, individuals should persevere 
You know, he said, you, Ananda, should develop your concentration. You should develop your meditative abilities. He talked as if there's a self and a self should work hard, develop capacities and so forth. And in fact, even in some of the language, uh, the most developed person called the arhat is sometimes in the Buddhist tradition called a maha-atta. Atta is the word for self. And maha-atta means great self. And that language was used. That would be more conventional language. There is a self, a great self. And it's interesting that you have that, you know, that uh, so we have this conventional use of language, which is one way of talking about things. And it's in itself, it's perfectly valid as long as we look at the assumptions behind them. And, and so a conventional language would say, would be more conceptual. It would say, I'm here, you're there, the object's here. And we use that way of speaking to get certain things done, even to do our practice. You know, we have, you know, when we do retreats, we, ha- we assume that um, uh, people will come at a certain time, that they will register. You know, <laughs> there's all sorts of potentials for humor, isn't there? If there's no self, who needs to register for a meditation <laughs> retreat? <laughs> You know, but, we, but we stay on that conventional level and we say, we register when you, you, know, when you, when you, when you leave this morning. You might, one might say, if there's no self, why does it matter what car I drive away in? And you might say, well, on a conventional level, it matters that I would like to go to my car, of course, with locks and all this stuff. It's, it's not so possible, but... but uh, uh, I remember there was one retreat where someone actually explored this, um, one teacher, not, not with the cars, but with, he basically wanted two people to explore the sense of self. And so he said that um, you can sit on any meditation cushion whatsoever. And so people, you know, often in a retreat, the sense of self manifests very strongly <laughs> as my meditation cushion, where I sit, you know, my, my shawl, my, my blanket, and so forth. And when he did this, it, you could see that it was, <laughs> people would go back and people would have insecurity, where am I going to sit, and so forth. And um, that practice has not been repeated widely. <laughs> And so there's a certain value to this conventional level where we use language, we uh, make a general assumption that it broadly corresponds to reality and so forth. But there's also uh, what we might call uh, a teaching on the level of more ultimate reality, of, of actually what we see when we look more clearly. And this is actually uh, what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about not-self that the teaching of not-self goes hand-in-hand with admitting that we can talk about self in a conventional way. And that's really how the paradox gets unpacked, how we can make some sense of it. And so what is actually significant is then to look at the, of how the construction of self appears when we look more carefully, when we look actually with a lot of uh, depth and careful looking and we do this especially first in our formal meditation, where we, where we can look 
where we can look carefully at experience. The Buddha particularly uh, talked about this, and I think it's actually something that is brought out quite a bit in Western traditions of philosophy and psychology. The Buddha said, let's look carefully at experience and see where self appears. See where we find a self appearing. And he actually questioned whether self is just a concept that we use to actually, um, on a conventional level, simplify experience. But that actually, if we actually believe in the concepts, we are led into suffering. If we get attached to our concepts and think that there's a separate self, we actually build barriers to looking more deeply, where we can actually see these experiences where something like the self is not present, where we're actually experienced, where there's much more of a sense of interconnection, interdependence, and a lack of a solid separate self. And I think we actually, even though that may, you know, at first may sound somewhat mystical, I think we experience that all the time. I think we experience at sense, what we might call a sense of selflessness all the time. And I was thinking of it in terms of um, times when we are simply acting very fully and there's no self-consciousness and there's no self-image and there's no comparing of myself to, how, you know, to another person, no sense of how I'm doing. I'm just, as it were, totally in the flow. I was thinking of a few examples of that. One of them might be um, one of them might be in sports that we can see that when athletes are totally in the flow, they have a phrase for it. Like in especially in basketball, they talk about being in the zone. That we could say being in the zone is being without self-consciousness and being without self. And it's really a way in which our total abilities are happening and yet there's no sense of self. And it's actually taken to be quite a powerful time. Uh, One example of this that some of you may may know, I don't know how many fans of basketball there are here, but actually for me it's actually the only real sport that I really like to pay attention to. And some years ago, uh, Michael Jordan was playing in the NBA Finals. And one particular game, he was in the zone. He, was, he lived in the zone quite a bit. <laughs> and one particular game, he, in one half of basketball, had shot uh, six three-pointers. You know, which people, everyone know what a three-pointer is. <laughs> I mean, it's from far away. <laughs> and it's, you know, that doesn't happen so much. And as he finished shooting the sixth, he looked over to the press corps and he went like this, meaning, I don't know how it happened. Basically, we could say it meant I wasn't really there. There was no self there. I was just using my gifts, as it were, without a sense of self. And of course, what go to making that gesture was bringing in a sense of self. And of course, he missed his next shot. (laughs) So that's an example. I think that's an everyday example of this sort of what we might call this ultimate level 
where the sense of self is not there. It makes some sense. Another, another would be, you know, I know for myself as a teacher, I am at my best when I'm not thinking about how I'm doing, I'm not comparing, I don't have a sense of self-consciousness, and I'm just operating. And I think we all experience this in various ways in everyday life. You know, being, another example would be being with friends. You know, there are, one of the marks of friendship is that we can drop our posturing, our fronts, our self-images, our masks, and so forth. We drop a sense of self, and in a sense we're just there. And with people we're very close to, that hopefully happens a lot. And of course, what we often find in those kind of relationships is we actually come up against the sense of self. That's where there sometimes is friction. And we, and we actually can be constructive. Another example would be, uh, let's say, being a musician. You know, a musician for uh, different kinds of artists. A musician would uh, be fully in the flow and there typically wouldn't be much sense of self. You know, every time in a band or something, when someone in the band thinks, oh, that was really good what we just did, the moment is lost, right? And they're out of the flow. And so a musician would have this, this quality, we might say, of selfless flow. And that would be actually felt as something that was uh, the height of development. How many people can know in your own experience something like that kind of experience of, of kind of being with the selfless flow? So almost everyone. And it is, however, something that is uh, developmental. That I know for myself, to come more and more to that place as a teacher, I had to go through all sorts of periods where I was, as it were, in training. <laughs> you know, where there was a sense of self, and it still can be. But, but there were, can be a sense of self, or self-consciousness, or uh, doesn't work, or I have, you know, I have to also have to gain certain basic competences. As a musician, let's say one is a pianist, one would have, before one could get to that place, one has to master the scales, you know, get the basic competences and do that. And then, only then, can you really be a true not-self. <laughs> you know, so it, it has developmental prerequisites that we have to go through to get there. So, one of, now when we look to meditation for this, one of the, one of the ways that this sense, uh, this more ultimate level is expressed, and it's expressed in a number of different ways throughout the Buddhist tradition, one of the ways that this is expressed is through the teaching of the constituents of experience, and particularly through a model called the model of the five aggregates, the five skandhas. And how many people are familiar with that teaching called the five skandhas? Some, but, but mostly, mostly not. This is how the Buddha tended to talk when he was trying to look at a more ultimate level of what the nature of the self is. And he said that when we actually look to uh, our experience, and he said we really, to answer the question of the self, we have to especially look to the ex- our experience and ask whether we find a self in experience. <coughs> Interestingly, there have been a number of Western philosophers and psychologists who have made the same move. Some of you who studied philosophy may remember David Hume in the uh, 18th century said, I have looked at experience and I do not find a self. I only find sensations, 
thoughts, emotions, and so forth. I do not find a self in experience. Interestingly, happening in Edinburgh, in in uh, Scotland, in the 18th century, about you know around in the early first half of the 18th century, very similar uh, notion with the Buddha. The Buddha said, "Let's just look at experience and see how self appears." And what he basically is saying that when we look to the more direct experience of whatever is there, we don't find self. That self is a kind of overlay on experience. It's saying, there's a thought. Oh, that's a good thought. That's my thought. (laughs) But that when we actually stay at the more direct level of experiencing thoughts or emotions or body sensations or whatever, we don't find a self. That self is a way of bringing an overlay to experience. And it actually, when we look at it carefully, uh, a lot of suffering is connected with that. That's really what the radical teaching is, is that the deepest levels of freedom actually go beyond that overlay of experience that have to do with just with, and I think, again, that practical way of making sense of it can, can be connected with what I was talking before and ta- calling a kind of in-the-flow selfless experience. The question is, what would it be like to live like that more and more? That's kind of a very uh, maybe down-to-earth way of talking about it. So we can stay away from getting getting caught in the concepts. What would it be like? Wouldn't you like to live like that as much as you could? That's really what this is pointing to. to. And what we can do with the meditation that really can help us is we actually can learn better how to stay with more direct experience, we can learn to distinguish more easily between the more direct experience and the extent to which we live in a conceptual realm. And so I can be, for example, with my thoughts, or I can be, let's say, I can be with an emotion of sadness, and I can see how there are strong tendencies for me to proliferate into a story. You know, I have a... And sometimes we just stay at that level of the story that I have for example, um, a uh, difficult discussion with my friend, her partner. And all of a sudden I found myself um, in a mental dialogue in my own mind where I'm judging and blaming the other person. And it starts to make a very solid self. One of the things that we can do with meditation is we can actually just notice that tendency of the thoughts to form into judging and blaming. And sometimes we can actually notice that beneath that there's some kind of sadness or maybe fear. Something happens. And we can actually be with that and see how the thoughts and the concepts develop. So we can learn how to be better, uh, more competent to be with the uh, more direct experience. And we can also see the characteristic uh, forms of the self that appear. And that's what I'm going to focus especially on next time. We can identify, okay, here are the forms here. And I'll just give a a little preview. We can see here are forms of self. Here's the form of self that comes from my family upbringing. Here's the self-image I have from that. Here's the form of self I have from the roles that I take as a mother or a son or a businesswoman or whatever, and I can see how I kind of attach on to that role and make a self out of it. A lot of what we're looking for is the, the activity that takes a direct experience and builds it up in some way. 
That's what, and so that's what we can actually study. The Buddha said that we can actually look at our experience and see it in terms of five main forms, or five, maybe five main aspects. This was his, he said that actually that's all there is. There is no additional overlay of self. He said we can look and see, first of all, what he called form or material form, rupa. And that is the, uh, we could say that's both the, uh, the physical body, but also all the use of the senses. So in our experience, when we see something, when we smell something, when we uh, touch something, when we have physical sensations in our body, that's the dimension of form. And he says that a large percentage of our experience is just the experience of form. It's the experience of a sense connecting with what we could call a sense object, with, my, with a, a sense of uh, sensation or a sense of feeling connected with sensations on, in my knee or in my shoulder. He said there's a second, a second aspect, which is that of feeling tone which is the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in every moment. We've talked about that at different times in the last month. He says, experience also has the quality of this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And of course, a lot of what, a lot of what happens in experience is that we have something pleasant happen and we tend to grasp onto it. We have something unpleasant happen, we tend to push it away. I have an unpleasant sensation and I, my mind starts racing and saying, get, getting scared. I have, an un, I have a pleasant uh, emotion and I want to have more of it. I have an unpleasant uh, dialogue with someone and I freak out. And I, start, I can just, by the basis of one unpleasant sensation, my mind can go off for hours. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why looking at this uh, quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral is very crucial. And the, the direction is, can I just see this as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral without what's said to proliferate on the basis of that? That's the direction. And you can see a lot of what we call self is in that proliferation. Is it possible just to be with what's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral without proliferating thoughts and concepts? Not so easy. We're all conditioned to proliferate. A third area is that of perception, or sanya. And it's a very interesting area that also helps us to see, ask the question, what is really a basic level of experience and where do we add on to it? You know, and it actually gets very, very interesting. Uh, what is the raw data of perception and what is a construction based on memory and social consensus about what's real? Interesting question, isn't it? You know, so we, um, uh, we tend to assume that uh, when I perceive this bell, that there's really a bell here. Or we, we tend to, our perception in this analysis actually is on the basis of memory. And there's, a, there's kind of a uh, common consensual set of experiences that make us more or less live in the same world, that we perceive the same things. But actually, that's, that's a little more problematic than we think. So keep your seatbelts on now, because we're going to take you in that direction a little bit. Um, 
One thing is that different species do it in different ways. There's a really interesting uh, paper that was published a long time ago that I remember studying in college called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. Does anyone remember that? It was one of the early essays in uh, what's now called cognitive science. And basically, it was a really amazing paper because it basically found frogs don't relate to some external reality. We might assume frog is just out there with the same kind of reality as us, right? Just kind of dealing with it and so forth. Not at all. <laughs> and basically, the interesting thing is it's true of every species. You know, basically, each species constructs whatever this is in a different way. There's no external reality. You know, what we're experiencing here is the way humans doing it, and particularly the way humans do it in Northern California in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, and so, interesting thing with frogs is that all of reality for frogs turns into four categories. That's it. And, the main, and it all is connected with survival needs. The main category, let me see if I can find it here, the main category is uh, a convex form moving centripetally. That's a fly. <laughs> so when there's something that comes across the field of vision that's moving and has a certain form, that registers as one of the four categories of reality. And the tongue goes out. <laughs> You know, and but it's actually interesting. It was said in this paper. Let me see. The frog does not seem to see, or at any rate, is not concerned with the detail of stationary parts of the world around the frog. The frog will starve to death surrounded by food if the food is not moving. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think the other the other categories have to do. Not one of the other categories is large shape moving quickly across the field, sign of danger. Right? And so what the, uh, what the frog does in that case is to move towards a place of darkness. Whether or not there's danger there, it just moves. It sees something coming, it moves in a certain way. And, and you get a sense that this, and this is, this, is what it's, this is what its reality is. It doesn't see the world in the same way as we do. And all species have some version of that. And we do that too. What? Yeah. And, and in fact, the whole way that we construct the world is on the basis of memory and social consensus. Of course, different cultures do it differently. We know Eskimos have 40 words for snow. And they, look at, they would look at snow in a way really different from you. Even as well, someone who is trained in a particular discipline, you know, like maybe a, even a someone who's trained in art will look at a painting and see something very different than you, or someone who really knows a culture well will see things you don't see. Very interesting example comes from one of the uh, stories of Oliver Sacks, you know, the very interesting person who, who I think, a neurologist. And uh, this story is from a, a book called uh, An Anthropologist on Mars. And it's a story of a man named Virgil, and this I think was made into a movie. Uh, I think it was called At First Sight. I didn't see it, but I heard it was made into a movie uh, with Mira Sorvino. And so you could actually check this story out, <laughs> how the movie. But basically, he was a man who had been blind all his life. And he could had some vision, a little bit of vision, but he really 
had been mostly blind. And they had, in the advances in some of the development, they had the ability, they thought, to actually give him his sight back. And so they carried out a uh, surgery, and it was judged successful. And he had bandages over his eyes, and of course this very dramatic, emotional, powerful moment comes when they take the bandages off and ask him to look. And he later reported that when the bandages were taken off, he had no idea what was going on. There was just this complete mass of sensations and colors and shapes. He had no sense of people being there through the visual field. When they started talking, that was another matter because he was familiar with sound. But visually, he couldn't, he couldn't notice a thing. He didn't see people. He didn't know what was going on. He was actually very confused. It was actually somewhat painful. And actually, over time, he chose mostly to live the way he had always lived without much sight. He kept, uh, he kept his eyes covered a lot of the time because it was actually too much. There was no world of objects just waiting for him that he would easily fit into. What that points to is that our ability to discern is based on experience and memory built up over a long time, our ability to perceive the world. From a meditative point of view, this is very interesting, because part of what we do is, in a sense, we learn how to um, see perception forming and to be able to go back to the raw sensations and data, which is very interesting. From the point of view of our training, it's important because we can see all the ways that our perception basically gets us into trouble, the way that we see things and make all sorts of assumptions. You know, I'll just give, I'll just give one example. I could give a lot, and maybe I'll give more <laughs> next time. But one example would be, um, <clears throat> you know, you know, just coming over here, the bad traffic. You know, I noticed, you know. Uh, there was a long, I, I was going on to Sir Francis Drake from the East Bay. It was a long line. It took a lot of time. And someone, right, uh, instead of staying in the long line, which added 10 minutes, cut in right at the end, right? Now, <laughs> now, with meditative training, we can actually notice comments arising. You know, could be that person's whatever, selfish, or, you know, I'm going to honk really loudly. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I actually had the thought, uh, have a big sign that I hold up, say, are you being greedy or are you, is there some emergency? <laughs> Something like that. But, uh, but, but, but the fact is we actually don't know. And when we perceive that person as greedy or as a problem, there might be about an 80% chance that we're right, but we actually don't know. And we do that all the time. We make assumptions about people. And this is at the level of perception. So when we actually do this, and something to look at next week, we can actually see, can I, can I look at the direct experience and not just the perception? The fourth uh, of the skandhas is called uh, sankara, sometimes called... Uh, mental formations or volitional formations. It really is the whole area of thoughts and emotions and so forth. And we're really asked just to see those. Can I see the thought? Can I see the sense of self developing from that? Is it possible just to be with the thoughts and the emotions without commentary, just to be with them? 
The last is the quality of consciousness, which is the quality of knowing. And the ability just to be aware. And again, it is, is there a self in consciousness? The findings of the Buddha is that when you look to these aspects of direct experience, you don't find a self. And that self is an overlay on experience. And that it actually gets us into a lot of trouble. And that when we're at our most free and most heartfelt and most wise, we actually are more like that experience of being in the flow where there isn't really a self. And so the practices that I invite for the next week would be to look at the sense of self as it appears. Check that out as it appears in your experience. It could be through self-images, when you do something and you make a comment about yourself. It could be when you, in I'll say, in formal meditation, try to really stay with your present experience and see if you can notice more and more fully that difference between being with the direct experience and the commentaries. You might want to even work with that con- with the, the five skandhas and look particularly, how do I do that with physical experiences? How do I do that with the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? How do I do that with perception? How do I do that with thoughts and emotions? How do I do that with consciousness? So, so in formal meditation, really study how self... And it's not that we're trying to say, oh, self-forming, bad. That's, we all have plenty of self. But what's real, this is, think of the next week as more like an exploration. Let me just see what's there. Let me just notice. Let me just study without trying to have any results, particularly, or just any preordained findings. Just let me see what's there. Where does self appear in my formal meditation? And where does self appear in uh, the flow of everyday life when self becomes, let's say, (coughs) thick? When self becomes thick in relationships, at work, and again, it's not, there's a lot of issues here that, that can be unpacked. And I'm not saying at all that we should just have this passive approach where we just let everything go because there's no self. That's a misunderstanding. Actually, what this permits is actually a deeper and wiser and more compassionate response. If my boss is really angry at me and I feel it's unjustified and I find myself developing, uh, what we can do is we can look at that, and it doesn't mean that I don't respond in a way uh, to my boss, but when we actually look at this construction of self, I think it helps us to be actually wiser and more compassionate, rather than just going on automatic pilot with my anger. So that's, that's an important point. This isn't inviting us to be selfless blobs, but it actually, I think, deepens our ability to be responsive. So that's my invitation to do those two main practices, both in formal meditation, notice especially the difference between direct experience and the commentary, and then in uh, every day in the flow of what we call informal practice, look for when self becomes thick and just stay with it and notice it. So, So I talked a little longer than I thought I would, but I got... I really wanted to tell the story about the frogs. <laughs> so we have a little time for questions or discussion. Please. Yeah. Could you um, give me the main headings of the third and the fifth skandha? Uh, perception, perception and consciousness. consciousness. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, 
usually called form, the first, uh, feeling tone, the second, perception, the third, uh, volitional formations. Or we, I think it's okay to think thoughts and emotions for the fourth, uh, and then consciousness. Yeah, and it's a little bit of an arbitrary list. You could add others, but it's, it's more trying, what this is trying to do is to say, let me really, let's look at experience in terms of what we directly experience and try to distinguish that from the conceptual overlay. And again, it's not saying that the conceptual overlay isn't important. It's very useful, but it's very helpful not to take it for granted and to actually go deeper in experience. That's why we meditate. Because basically we get caught up in the overlay and we actually don't see what's deeper. Please, yeah. You know, I recently had an experience, um, one of many, where uh, let's so make certain just assumptions and had that proliferative experience yeah, of yeah. having a whole scenario of what was happening and what the other person was thinking, etc. And it, it seems like once the proliferation starts, it's really difficult yeah. to let go of that. The longer it goes, the harder it is. Um, but I'm not sure once you're really into that, uh, exactly what to do. It's yeah. Really, it feels harder to observe it at that point. Yeah, it's a great question. Your name again? Claire. Claire. Everyone hear the question. It's about this strong tendency. Uh, well, there's a strong tendency to have proliferation. And then once we're in it, how do you how do you practice? How do you get out of it? And um, usually, it's it's helpful if it's really really strong, just to to uh, invite it to stop, and to it might be to um, might be to just be with your breath. To you know, it could be on a lot of levels. Sometimes, sometimes. Um, just relaxing the body can be helpful. You know, do some exercise. You know, I have a regular practice after uh, I'm, I also have a, about a half-time position at a graduate school, and we have all-day faculty meetings. And I regularly, after those faculty meetings, just go swimming. Because it's actually helpful. It really quiets things. It's almost like our nervous system gets overly activated. And so that can often be a very helpful way to work with repetitive thoughts, is just to actually not even look at them directly, but respond more physically. So that's one, one point. And then can also uh, work, just work with concentration and the breath, just, just actually just notice them and come back. Um, if we're in the middle of interpersonal relationships and we're noticing ourselves in that state, it can be just a good time to say, let's have a time out, or let's not continue if, it's a, if, it's a, if we're talking with someone. And just to have that mindfulness, oh, I'm proliferating, it's most likely not going to be, you're not probably going to be at your best and your wisest. And so it can be really useful just to cut it. So those are three, three ways. Yeah. It's a great question. Please, yeah. Mm-hmm. The moment I start to be a judge, make a judgment, myself comes into it. Mm-hmm. So, will the practice be of bringing, just bring, try to bring the witness in, just to see it as a play-by-play? Mm-hmm. It can be. Yeah. The question is about the the use of the witness. Actually, that's we, it's not a term we use in Buddhist practice. It's actually I think comes more 
from Hindu practice, but it's, it's close to the sense of uh, mindfully observing experience, pretty close to that. And yes, that, that can be, if that, if that metaphor is helpful, uh, what we, with mindfulness, we want to encourage an ability just to stay with being aware of what's happening. And so that aspect of witness makes sense. If we, if the danger would be that we, that we become detached and that we actually don't experience directly, that we actually create a witness self. That's possible. People do that in meditation. They, we try to, you know, try to get beyond the self and we create a meditative self <laughs> that, that's detached and wise and aloof and, you know, beyond desire and so forth. And, there are all sorts of interesting ways that people basically, <laughs> in a very creative but somewhat misguided ways, uh, create you know meditative self-images, meditators with big selves, you know, with you know, and, and, there, and there are there are a host of confusions. I'm not saying that, that that's there. We have to watch out for a little bit because the, the danger would be if it gets too detached, and we identify with it. But but the quality of just really saying, let me just be aware of this, almost like a scientific approach, mm-hmm. is really, really helpful. And that's... It gives you a lot of space. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of space. And we just say, let me just look at this. I'm feeling really uh, anger towards my partner. Let's just be aware of it. And give space, and we don't have to act on it. And we're actually creating almost like a uh, different, uh, different force in the mind. Maybe last question, because we're, we're at about 11. So mine is similar to that in that I work with the premise of this is what's happening at this moment and yeah. it's not the way it will always be. Is there the same detachment then that you are not sitting with it? You know, I, I understand like this is how I feel now. This is not how I will always feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting um, because um, we can, uh, the, the intention is to be really full with what's there. Sometimes it's helpful to say, this is impermanent, it's not always going to continue like this. And we can watch our mind that says, uh, let me be, uh, let, this is going to just keep on going forever. And a lot of our fears are like that. So what's important though is to um, maybe distinguish between when we're actually being mindful we're not actually giving ourselves those pep talks. And so there's a real value, maybe helpful to distinguish between reflection, which can be really valuable, and the actual act of being mindfully aware. The reflection can be really helpful. We might, in terms of my uh, distinction between the conventional and the ultimate, if we want to use that division, when we're reflecting, we're using those concepts to say, okay, take it easy. It's not always going to be like this. It's impermanent. That's reflection. And then, then we say, let me just be aware. And then we move to mindfulness, which is a little bit more of that ultimate perspective without concepts. The first part is really valuable. It's one of the valuable uses of the concepts to give us energy and perspective. And then we go into the mindfulness and look, and that is not like that. Does that make some sense? Yes. Yeah. It's, isn't this fascinating? I, I was excited to, to, to explore this. I was excited. Is there, is there a self-developing? Uh, 
So it's kind of a lot of, it can be a lot of playfulness and paradox with this, which probably for many of us is really interesting. For some of us, it's, I don't like that. <laughs> but I think for m most of us, it's, it can be really, it's fascinating because there's a lot of learning possible here. So my invitation would be to uh, continue with those two practices that I gave for next time and we'll uh, expand it. And I think I will focus especially on, the, on some ways that the structure of self appears in our experience and also bring in some of the qualities of the heart, of, of the practices of compassion and loving kindness and the role that they play in exploring self and selflessness. Um, how many of you would like to look uh, to do those two practices for the next week um, and to, to give a focus? I wish we had a kind of email way of just reminding of us because sometimes, you know, tomorrow will you remember? Right. <laughs> so, yeah? Yeah, okay, and I'll close with this uh, and then just do a dedication of merit. So the two practices are First, in our formal meditation practice, if we sit for half an hour, let's say, during the day, to bring ourselves, and we may focus first on the breath and achieve stability, but then when we have some degree of mindfulness, to try to stay as much as possible with that more direct experience. We might even, we might even use uh, the technique of noting, of just knowing, okay, here, here are sensations in my body, here are perceptions, here are, here is the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, here are thoughts and emotions, and so forth. And just trying to stay there and try to stay with that level of more direct experience and notice how our thinking and our concepts take us away from that. Not judging ourselves for that or blaming ourselves for that, but just what, we have, what we're trying to do is really notice the process of moving from the direct experience, which is in some sense connected with the sense of self. So we're really exploring the territory of what uh, Gil Fronsdale called selfing. That's the first practice. The second practice is to then bring that out into our daily life experience and to see in the flow of everyday life where, that sen where, where the sense of self becomes thick, where it uh, might be self-image or self-righteousness or self-judgment, where in our ordinary experience the sense of self becomes thick and study it. <coughs> yeah, not necessarily at this point trying to change anything, but just explore what's there. And you might want to take notes over the next week. Take notes on what you find and we'll compare notes. And next time I'll plan to talk less time and have more time for our reports back. Yeah. We do have the Yahoo group for this Wednesday. Yeah. Group and you can, I can send out a notice midweek or something yeah. to remind people. So if you don't, if your name isn't on that list, we'll put what a sheet that by the front. There's a Yahoo group um, for the Wednesday Sangha that we all use to it's a list, a listserv that gives information, and we could give a reminder of looking at those two practices. Again, email. We'll, so we're, a, we'll put a piece of paper up by the front right now after class, and you can put your name on, and we'll put your name. So let's just let's just sit for a minute to finish. <coughs> Bringing out your own intention, 
to work with whatever seemed helpful. I'm just reflecting on your intention coming out of our morning together. And knowing that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the fruits, the benefits of our morning together out beyond the walls of Spirit Rock, out beyond the land, going in all directions for the benefits and the freedom and the healing of all beings. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.